We have studied um, some weeks ago the doctrine of manhood or biblical manhood, and now we're answering a little bit with a few uh, Sundays on the uh, Bible's teaching on womanhood. Uh, gender issues, and if you don't mind, gender studies are a big topic in these days, and we wonder, well, how? why is that? Well, there's a reason, I'm sure, but this uh, quotation from uh, a book I'll mention here in just a moment uh, says this, the gender debate is not an abstract, impersonal, doctrinal controversy. It touches directly on our humanness, our sexual identity, our ministry opportunities, the marriage relationship, family life, and life in the local church. It raises fundamental issues regarding fairness and justice, the influence of secular culture on Christian thinking, the correct methods for interpreting God's word, the leadership of our churches, and our faith in God's word. It is an emotionally charged controversy that divides churches and denominations worldwide. This is from Alexander Strauch's book, Men and Women Equally at Different, and notice it was published in 1991. You think, oh, so this, this has been going on for 20-some years, this issue? No, it's been going on, how about like 6,000 years? This whole thing about gender issues and gender conflict and the upsetting of God's intended order for male and female, men and women. We have seen it in the sexual revolution recently, and it's really, you could call it the sexual liberation uh, movement, where there are at least three things that have been attempted to liberate, which and, and some rather successfully, and that is the liberation of sexual activity from pregnancy through birth control and abortion. So now, sexual intimacy you can engage in without the fear of consequences. Babies, say, hey, we can get rid of babies. We can either prevent the conception of them or just kill them outright afterwards after they're already conceived. Well, that's not what God intended, I dare say. And also liberating biological sex from gender. So sex does not equal gender anymore, at least in some people's minds. And it views gender as a social construct. Gender has to do with how we dress, how we talk, how we communicate, how we relate with other people. It doesn't have so much to do with our biology or anatomy or physiology. It's something entirely different. And then, therefore, you can liberate traditional roles from gender. You can say, well, it doesn't matter. We don't need a hierarchy, a patriarchy. We don't need authority or leadership. We, we can do, uh, you know, men and women can do the same thing. It's not a big deal either way. And so we can do whatever. Well, part of what has resulted from that is a transgenderism. If, if they're just equal, then it doesn't really matter who you are or what you are. Gender, the term, has come to have a minimal still has some reference to biology, but more to do with culture, conduct, and psychology. Now, we're not against culture so much. We're not against conduct. Everybody conducts themselves in various ways. We're not against psychology as a study and an observational study of human behavior, thinking and behavior. But when it comes time to challenge biblical norms, uh, designs, and decrees of God, then, yeah, we have a problem with that. We want to go back to God's word because God's word is authoritative. And culture is, if you don't mind, you've heard the phrase perhaps that politics is down, downstream from culture. Well, culture is downstream from religion or faith. And so if we want to affect politics in the long run, we have to back up not just to culture and fight culture wars. We've got to back up to faith. What do people believe? And so we, we, we preach the scriptures, with, as we just read in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that's how we grow. That's how we engage the battle. That's how we challenge these crazy ideas of transgenderism and uh, egalitarianism, if you don't mind. The equality of the sexes in every which way, interchangeability of sexes. There's one, one 
case of this, and you can consider it as you will. Gender has come to have minimal reference to biology. Isn't it interesting that when, when folks have a gender dysphoria, and I'm not, I'm not speaking condescendingly, I'm saying people are confused. Is it no wonder? I mean, when you come unhinged from the book, it is confusing and it is horrible. And we'll look at some, some causes, human cause, humanly speaking causes of gender dysphoria in just a moment. But isn't it interesting when people, when individuals who are struggling with their, their sexual identity, their gender identity, however you want to refer to it, I view sex and gender as equivalent terms, that they, well, just for example, if a boy thinks he is a woman, then he will behave in certain ways and want to have his anatomy match what he expects a woman to be. Oh, so gender really is tied to anatomy, isn't it? If you want change to become that, then, oh, it's not just about your conduct. It's not just about the social construct. It actually has to do with changing, changing your body as well. Well, the etiology. That's a rather big word for a Sunday morning, but etiology just means causative factors, influential factors that lead to a gender dysphoria, a, a, a thinking about, uh, a wrong thinking, if you don't mind, of who I am as a person or, or who you are. Well, there are stereotypes that, that come into this whole idea. If you were to think uh, that, oh, so somebody, you know, a manly man is one who is a warrior, who is strong, and he, he just, you know, wields a sword, right, because forget about these guns. That's so uh, barbaric, if you don't mind a little hat tip to Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, that, that the, you know, blasters, we, we need swords. And so, but wait a minute, what about if that same guy who's this mighty man of, of warfare, what if he's also like a musician, a poet who plays a harp? And I think that's no man. That's David. King David. Can you imagine? That's a beautiful, beautiful man whom God loved. Stereotypes can be helpful to a certain degree. What about, I have a friend in Texas who says, real men wear pink. Do you? I mean, do you, does, do you view pink? No, that's a, a feminine thing. There are these stereotypes that you know, you've got to run fast, you've got to play ball, uh, you know, football or, or, or soccer. And so there's these stereotypes that, that are confusing and, and limiting to people. Well, where do we see it in Scripture? If you can come to Scripture and say, well, this is how men or women ought to act, well, there's not a stereotype. There's a design and decree from God. But there are so many things. Uh, you know, what kind of music, musical instruments you can play, what kind of vocation, you know, career you can have that are limiting to people. And so they think, well, I guess I can't be who I am physically and still do what I want to do because that's against the stereotype. Well, maybe it's the stereotype that needs to change, not the person. What about... Um, you know, young ladies who, who view themselves as tomboys. And so, well, if they keep acting like a tomboy, then they must be a boy, right? No, no, you're just acting that way. And you're uh, gregarious and you're whatever kind of uh, things are going on there. What about relationships? When uh, the, the peer pressure, if you don't mind, the, the pressure upon people to conform, the looking for, uh, if you don't mind, the love in all the wrong places, that is confusing that is debilitating that will contribute to the idea of of you know problem thinking in our minds what about if we're plagued with depression and we just can't get out of bed in the, in the, in the morning and we're just overwhelmed by sorrow and frustration and and uh, it just it's just oppressive to us we can't even manage we can't even bear with this and so depressive thoughts which if you don't mind are really part and parcel of this adolescent I'm using that in quotes adolescent you know uh, pre and, and, and uh, inter and post pubescent period of our young people's lives, 
where they're just confused and they're wondering. And even maybe if you remember that, if you're an older person like me, you think, how many times a day should I ask Jesus into my heart, right? Every night, of course. I want to be a Christian today and I hope tomorrow. But this uncertainty that, that I don't, just troubles, troublesome thoughts. Or maybe anxious thoughts. that I don't know what's going to happen. And it's just horrible. I can't even think about what's going to happen tomorrow. I, do, I dread going to school the next day. I dread because there's a lot of young people who are afflicted with this gender dysphoria in these days. Again, it's been going on for centuries and millennia. And yet, so much of it has gone on, just uh, exponential growth in terms of the the dysphoria, the identity, but also the, the means to, to change uh, the, the sex, the anatomy, and so forth. There are other pressures in life, uh, societal pressures. There's conflict all over and just different things upon people. Uh, there's abuse. So much of, well, I couldn't put a, a number on it, but people, young people are... They don't want their bodies to be abused. They don't want to have trauma. They don't want to be sexually assaulted. And so they say, I'm going to hide my body. I'm going to change my body. I'm going to be something different than I am because I don't want other people to take advantage of me. And so they take extreme ends to avoid that kind of sexual assault or neglect or whatever kind of abuse it is. They're lonely. They're looking for, again, love, but it's in the wrong places, in the wrong context. Or they compare themselves. Uh, Young people, young men that are looking at we're the same age, but he is like, you know, he's been shaving for three months or three years, and here I am, and I'm scrawny, I'm short, and, and all this. Or, or ladies who, you know, that person over there, she is, I mean, she's tall, and she's, she's got all this going on, and I've got nothing. And so there's comparison, and they say, wow, I guess, hmm, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of my body, I can't stand this. And so a lot of comparison, a lot of um, not good, not good comparison. That's going on there. Hormonal uh, conflicts just up and down and and things that are changing and it's just confusing and and fighting all these things. There are some biological disorders even, so uh, that, that, you know, anatomical things that are going on that are trying to, they're trying to work through and it's hard. Uh, They're also, hey, drug use and not just the street drugs, the the assigned or um, prescribed drugs that can just do a number on people. Um, Eddie Haskell, you remember Eddie Haskell? Leave it to Beaver. He would say something like, and, and uh, the big brother too, what's his name, would say something like, uh, you know, give them the works. I mean, that's what drugs do. They just give you the works. They, they do a number on you. Well, what are, the, what are the treatments for gender dysphoria? Notice what I didn't include. Puberty, puberty blockers, we're going to stop the puberty so it's not going to happen. We're going to change the hormones, instead of uh, testosterone for boys, we're going to give estrogen, progesterone to uh, boys so they can be developed as girls. And then, of course, surgery. Was there something missing in this treatment plan? And it's, it's documented on many individuals who have gone through this particular plan to try to have a gender dysphoria answered and solved for them so they can live their life as God intended. Well, no, God did not intend that. Uh, talk therapy talking through these issues, talking through depression, anxiety, talking through relationships, peer pressure, talking through trauma, abuse, that is so much missing. There might be maybe half hour, an hour long conversation with people before they say, okay, we're going to prove you for puberty blockers and, and then get on this whole chain or, or train of destruction. What this does is makes that person who goes through this process a lifelong patient, which means money. 
Am I saying all the people involved with this are after money? Well, not all, but why not? I mean, this is a great money-making event, and uh, we're trying to help people. They're, they're, they want help, and we're just offering what they want. Well, sometimes offering what they want is called enabling and not, not helpful. Well, we have a solution, not this solution, to gender dysphoria, and that is to affirm God's wonderful, gracious design for male and female, men and women. And there are several things we're going to look at. Actually, we're going to look at Genesis chapters 1 through 3 this morning, not all the, all the texts, and rather from a, a high level. But we see that God has both an equality of, of sex or gender, but also a distinction or a, a difference between male and female. And we can see, first of all, the equality that he has for us, beginning here in Genesis chapter 1. At the end of his creative work, we see on day 6, <coughs> where he says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that he will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says that God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. And he goes on talking about food and so forth. But notice, and whatever it means, and I want to get into the whole detail of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of of God, but whatever that means, it's applied to both male and female. In other words, The males don't have anything special in this regard that the women don't have, or vice versa. The women don't have any advantage in this regard that the the men, the males, do as well. God has created, verse 27, man. Notice when we talk about mankind, we don't usually refer to humankind, or excuse me, womankind. Isn't it interesting, too, why sometimes you say singular woman, but then plural women? Isn't that interesting? Just English. I'm thankful I learned it as a first language, not a second language, because the pronunciation, wow, what a challenge. Anyway, God created man, but what does he mean by man? Not just the one Adam, right? Male and female, male and female, Adam and Eve he created, both in the image of God. Well, some things about equality, that men and women are equal before God in all substantive ways. Everything that really matters, we are equal before God in substantive ways. God, we are, excuse me, we are equal as created in God's image and likeness. And again, some people would would emphasize the rationality, the relationship aspect of image of God. Some would emphasize the functional nature that we are God's representatives as as, uh, dominion um, enforcers in his creation. Whatever that means, image and likeness, it's applied to both male and female. We are equal in worth and we both deserve dignity. That's why we are pro-life, both from, from uh, natural uh, conception to natural death. We are pro-life. We're equal each life, regardless of injury, disability, um, whatever, is worthy of life and protection of service and love. We are equal in our ability to relate to God. In other words, men can approach God, women can approach God and have a relationship with him, and that is just a tremendous gift that God has given to both of us. Equality also in cooperating to fulfill the dominion mandate. This whole thing in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam, you go do that. And he says, how am I going to do that by myself? 
you know, he sees the animals, he sees the trees, he sees the plants, and he sees seeds, and he sees uh, the, the growing of, of stuff. Maybe not, I mean, it's just the first day, right? So maybe not all that in, 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 the, in actuality. But he says, am I supposed to take a piece of my body and plant it in the ground? That's going to, no, I've given you a woman. And both of you together are to be fruitful. You are to bear children. It's part of the whole dominion mandate. And multiply. So we can't just add. Can we just add God? Well, it's not like multiplying versus division or something like that. It's just growing. Increase your number and fill the earth and subdue it. Take it over, have dominion over all the creatures and so forth. So male and female have to cooperate. It can't just be the man, can't just be the woman. We need both. And we are equal in our responsibility to obey God. God has given us, I mean, from the very beginning, a command. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and all these things. And he goes on in chapter 2 with more commands. He goes on in, in the rest of the scripture giving us commands. Well, how, who's God to think he should be telling us what to do all the time? Our creator? The one who designed them? God? I mean, he's, he's, he's in charge, not you. So let's obey God. How about we are equal in opportunity for redemption? Isn't that wonderful? Salvation is not just for guys, and the women are out of luck or out of grace. Uh, but no, it, equal opportunity for redemption. We'll look at that as we close, conclude here in just a moment. With all that equality, there are distinctions. And this quotation from uh, a blog post some years ago, it's not about difference from each other, but difference for each other. The differences between men and women are precisely features that make them fitting for each other. That's what the joyful thing is. I mean, uh, as various people have said throughout the ages regarding uh, couples, marriages, if you're both the same, then one of, you, one of you is unnecessary. Isn't it interesting how it's not so much opposites attract, but differences attract. We don't, I don't need an exact carbon copy of me. What kind of wife would that be? But I have Mariah, who is different and yet wonderfully complimentary to me. And if you don't, I don't mind saying rather humbly, I'm good for her too. So it, it's just a wonderful thing. It's not from, we're different and we need to fight. No, we're different for each other and we can complement each other and grow together. There are some other differences. Let me just run through these rather quickly. In, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 even, we see uh, some differences going on in this text that really help us to see what, what is God doing? What is God communicating? What is God teaching? Even in the simple things of the order of creation or uh, in the fact that the male was created first. Well, we didn't get that from Genesis chapter 1, we do get it from Genesis chapter 2, right? If you look forward there in verse um, 7, Genesis 2 and verse 7, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. This is not man like plural, like mankind. This is the male adult, right? Male uh, adult human that God made, Adam. And God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So we see that man was created first. If you jump down to verse 18, God says uh, it's not good, right? This is the first time he said it, something's not good in his wonderful creation. It's not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so he did. In verse uh, 21 and following, God makes the woman second. First the man, then the woman What's the original material God used to make these individuals? Well, he made Adam from dust, which is suitable. I mean, look at us. We're just, look at men. But a woman fashioned from the rib, from the side of men, of that man, and beautifully arranged and just created out of God's wonderful design. 
Now, both men and women will return to dust. That's part of the, the, the curse and part of the actuality of, of life on earth. But there is that difference of original material that God has somehow set women apart as special, different. And as my father-in-law would say, women are like, or well, let me say it this way, women are like fine china. You treat them preciously. You treat them, you, you hand wash them, you hand dry them, you carefully place them back in the, in the cupboard or whatever it is. You be careful. In contrast, men are like dog food dishes. You just kick it around, you toss it down there, you put dog food in it, and you let the dog eat out of it and slurp and just all the things. And so that's what, that's the difference we view about ourselves. We are servants. Men are servants. We can bear the, the hardship of the day, but we're going to protect our ladies. We're going to be very careful, uh, not treating them like, like they're, um, it's not fragility. It's not that they're uh, can be broken. It's that, that they are precious, that they are to be regarded as something very special, a gift of God. And so the original material does inform our, our relationship between uh, men and women, husband and wife. Where did God make Adam? Outside the garden. You see that in verse uh, 6, was it? No, it was verse... Eight. Here it is. Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. But that man was formed outside and then brought into the garden. Instead, we see that the woman, because Adam's already there, was made in the garden of Eden, in that place of perfection, in the place of provision of God. And so we see even that, that, that there is uh, some identifying aspect of humanity, of, of man, that, that, that is brought into and then brings order, right? And we'll see that in just a moment. The orientation that God has, has given to men and women is different. But Eve, the woman, is made in that garden and it already has, is, is enjoying the benefit of Adam's work, of his labor and so forth, of his ordering of creation, because in the midst, between the making of the man and the making of the woman was all this naming of creatures. What's this about? Well, exercising dominion and Adam being the one who is in authority. He's the one who can assign names to the animals and whatever uh, it says, whatever he called them, that's what, that's what their name was. And so that's how it goes. And um, I don't think I have it in the notes here, but Adam named the woman twice. I mean, we'll see that in just a moment. The orientation of the man is outward. In other words, you saw this in verse, uh, you know, I do have notes here. How about that? I can look at my notes. Um, the orientation of the man in verse 15 here is that Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden at, to cultivate it and keep it. His attention, his perspective, his orientation is toward the garden to work. And it says here both to um, cultivate and keep it, to to uh, uh, help it to grow and to guard it or protect it to to keep or or maintain it and so his his role his orientation is that way whereas the woman is brought to the man and as we'll see as we go along that her orientation is to the man and also to their progeny to their children adam both names the woman woman this is now woman because she was taken out of man verse 20 uh, three, and he names her at the end of chapter three. He says this: she's now Eve, which in our I think it's Latinized version is Eva, but in the Hebrew it's Hava, Hava, which translated says she is the mother of all all the living. So we see, but both her relationship to man, she was taken out of man, so she is oriented toward the man, and also she is the mother of all the living. So her orientation is toward man and children. Not exclusively. We'll look at that in just a little bit, whether or not today or, or next time. The order of sin. Oh, why do we have to get there? Adam sinned secondly. 
in terms of order, in terms of priority, it's his fault. It's not the woman's fault. She was, let me just put it this way, she was deceived whereas Adam disobeyed. And that's what got in the trouble. That's why we do not call it the Evian sin, right? We call it the Adamic, Adamic, uh, Adamic, if you don't put the emphasis on the right syllable. Uh, Adamic sin, because it's Adam, his disobedience, not Eve. She was deceived. She led her husband into sin, which was totally incorrect and and brought all kind of problems into the world. We see in relation to womanhood, in relation to the feminine, uh, it's not a mystique, thankfully. It is, it's quite revealed for us right here in, in Genesis 1 through 3. God made the woman to be a helper, suitable for him, for the man. Notice it said back in verse 18, Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Did it, did it say, I will make a servant. I'll, I'll make a slave. I'll make somebody that can, you know, make him his sandwiches and uh, do all of his laundry. And all. No, a helper is not just, is not, not just, it's not a slave. It's not a servant. It's not somebody subordinate to. Just because the wife is a helper doesn't mean, that, oh, that, well, she's under. She is, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why it's always compared, the wife is a doormat to wipe your feet on. No, that's not what it is. The helper oriented to her husband to help him succeed because what did God just say? This thing about the, the guy being alone, that's not good. Let me give him a helper that it says is suitable, meet for, right? A help meet for him. That word suitable has to do with the um, something that is right in front of, uh, complementary to, opposite, uh, or, or, or nearby right, like a right-hand man, we might call it, uh, the, an associate that is able to help and do things that we can't do, um, something that is proper for the man, somebody who is in companionship, and that's really what marriage is, if you don't mind. It's a covenantal companionship. It is that cooperation, like Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one. We just It's better to have two. And so we see that, that the, the wife is a helper suitable for him. This is her orientation toward her husband, toward the man. And we see that she is to help him. Now, you can look at this term help and say, well, it, it cannot just mean subordinate to, because God is described as our help. In fact, Psalm 121, uh, the psalmist says, I, my, I, look, my eyes, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where shall my help come from. My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Well, that's kind of a good help to have. The one who made heaven and earth, that's a good help to have, to rely on him, to draw near to him. My help comes from Yahweh. God has not come as a, well, think about it this way. God has come to advance his people. I was going to say that God did not come as a servant, and yet didn't Christ come as a servant? I mean, he's Lord of everything, master of everything, but he did not come to be served, but to serve. Christ emptied himself, and one of the famous phrases that Yahweh, uh, the God the Father, has regarding his son is my servant in Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah, and he is, is celebrating that fact. So a helper isn't just somebody who can, you know, what have you done for me lately kind of thing? Why aren't you serving me? Why aren't you paying attention to me? But somebody, I need this person, the man says. And the wife says, I, in my identity, in my creative order, am there to advance my husband. Lord willing, next week, we'll look at Psalm 31. No, no, Proverbs 31. There we go. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. And we'll see, this is an amazing woman. Wow. And it... it, it well, we'll just look at it next time. But 
the orientation she has is toward her, her husband and to her children, but she also has other things going on to advance her, her home life. And so we'll see that uh, next week, Lord willing. God made the woman to be a helper suitable for him. And of course, later in chapter 3, we're skipping over quite a bit, but we see that in verse 20, the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve, was the mother of all the living. And so we see that, and then chapter 4 goes on, gave birth to Cain, gave birth to Abel, and other people as well. Eve is really not mentioned anywhere else other than right here, and First Timothy and First Corinthians. And so, but we see that she is the source of everything. With Adam, of course, they made everything. She's the mother of all the living. And so helping Adam to fulfill that dominion mandate, to fill, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We see right in between these two issues, right, helper and mother, the whole thing of the fall. And just briefly, again, this is a rather high-level look at these, these important foundational chapters. The created order had God over man and woman, so God over humanity, and even that, that relational sub- submission or orientation, man over the woman, both by having been created first and by the fact, First Timothy 2 says, it was not the man who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived. And so that has to do with authority that we can talk about another time. But the created order had this, this, this hierarchy, if you don't mind, a patriarchy, God the Father, right? And then the man, the woman, and then animals. What did the sinful order establish? Animals. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, what are you doing? Listen to serpents after all. What kind of woman is she? Not to be fearful of snakes, right? Anyway, that's kind of stereotypical, rude, forget that. Never mind that. Because men are just as scared as snakes too. Good grief, they're frightening creatures. Um, so we see the animals are on, in charge. They're leading, they're calling the shots. And then the woman is the one responding. And then the man, oh, good grief, what is this man doing? Notice it said there in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. What a dupe. What I, got. I mean, would I have done anything different? Probably not. Oh, my wife thought it was good. I guess I'll, she's got good intuition. It was wrong. God had told him, do not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but she did, and nothing. she didn't drop dead, so it must be okay. And all the things going on, whatever it was, the order was reversed, and now the animals are calling the shots. So the woman is giving to her husband, and then the man says, hey, God, you're the one who caused this trouble because you gave me this woman. So it's just totally upsetting the whole order of, of, of events and everything. And notice when you get to the effects of the curse there at the end of chapter, well, kind of in the middle of chapter 3, that the effects of the curse reflect back on the orientation of the man and woman, particularly for the, for the uh, woman there in verse 15. There it is. I will put, well, no, excuse me, verse 16. I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you'll bear children and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The effects of the curse on the woman are have to do with her identity as mother, so you're going to have issues with childbearing, and your relationship to your husband is going to change. A lot of discussion, what does it mean, this, this thing about your desire will be for your husband? Whatever it is, it's not good, right? It's part of the curse, this whole conflict, this whole usurping authority, this challenging of authority. Uh, there will be, uh, instead of a wise and willing submission, not a doormat, not a, a servant, not a slavery, but a kind, uh, a wise and willing submission, which we'll see in Proverbs 31. What kind of a woman is this? Who can find a woman of, of virtue, of knowledge, of wisdom, of strength, of courage, of bravery? 
It's kind of hard to find this kind of person. Why? Because of the fall, because of the effect of the curse, because of the whole, uh, uh, um, what's the proper term, reversal or, or challenge to God's created authority, God's created uh, identity and so forth. So the effects of the curse on the woman have to do with childbearing, pain, and all this, these issues, and then to her husband, where the husband will be more likely to have severe domination or just the unabated exercise of his power and authority, which is just wicked. That's not, that's not what men should do. That's not what godly uh, husbanding is like. Or, like Adam, a passive husband. And so the woman really is in charge. Not necessarily because she wants to be, because he won't do it. He won't lead. He won't take care of things. Instead of what God intended for husbands, a loving and gentle care. Gentleness is strength used in under control, used for a particular purpose, not just, you know, bull in a china shop kind of thing. If you don't mind the analogy, hey, a china shop, china, fine china, go with that. Uh, so there are effects of the curse on the woman. We could look at the effects of the curse on the man, but they have to do with his work, right? His outward orientation. I'm here to, to exercise dominion. Now what's we gonna, what are we going to have? We're going to have thorns and thistles, cursed ground, and we're going to have sweatier face and all this kind of thing. And, well, good grief. That was, that's not part of the deal. I didn't want that. Death would be better than all this. No. Adam, you're going to, you're going to do this. You're going to bear the penalty for your sin because of your disobedience to me. Well, thankfully, there is hope. There is grace in all these things. All the curse, the, the, the subordination or the insubordination, there's the term I was striving for, not being in God's order, there is an, an answer. And it's part of the curse as well. And so we see this in verse 15. I will put enmity, this is Yahweh talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So a seed of woman, some child of, of the woman, which we can fast forward to Matthew chapter 1 and other places. This, this is Jesus we're talking about. This is the God-man. This is God come in the flesh who has come to save his people. You shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And he is the one who will conquer that serpent, not just the serpent like snakes are all evil. Well, it's personification of, and not just a personification, it is Satan indwelling or, or uh, working through that, that creature. And Jesus is not just going to eradicate all snakes, like St. Patrick, right, from Ireland. He is the one who's going to crush the head of Satan, will entirely decimate him, get him out of business, cast him into the lake of fire, which, by the way, that lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's never intended for humanity, and yet God is going to use it. In fact, the first two individuals cast into the lake of fire, that place that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever, it's not Satan, not his angels, or his demons, right? It's Antichrist and the false prophet. Humans cast into the lake of fire. Wait a minute, but God, you made that for the devil and his angels. You're acting like a devil when you follow him. When you disobey me, when you are traitorous, treacherous against me, when you're disobedient to me, you're acting like Satan himself, and you're going to suffer the same fate. But Jesus is the one who will bruise that serpent. But in the course of that, Satan will bruise him on the heel. Have a, a, a mortal wound, have a, a serious uh, injury upon Jesus, right? He died and he was buried and yet he was resurrected. He conquered death through that. So what we see here in verse 15 is what we like to call, not just in Latin, because this is Greek, a Greek term, the proto-euangelion. I think that's kind of fancy. 
the first preaching of the gospel right here in chapter uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Advancing, helping us realize salvation is going to come for the people and dominion over all creation. Animals are not in charge. They're the ones going to be subdued. And we see that God is able to bring from the woman a salvation to his people, even in the course of that. So now we get to one text. This is our last text we'll look at and be done. And that is a text that is so much used by people who would say, no, nah, uh, equality between the sexes is, is just what we see. And there is no distinction uh, between uh, male and female in, in, in terms of anything, really. And you can be whatever you want to be. And you can have any role in society you want to have, any role in the marriage and family that you want to have. There is what you would call egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is a French word which comes from Latin, equality, right? So just uh, now we talked about some equality, right? There is equality in a lot of respects, but there's also diversity and distinction. And so we need to maintain these. Galatians 3 and verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, I guess I, never mind what I just said all this past hour because this verse just undermines the whole thing. There's no, there's no really no difference. The man can bear children just as well, as, and the man can be oriented to the wife and be her helper. And No, that's not what this verse is saying. Aren't there still differences between Jew and Greek? Notice, and this I don't want to get too much into this, but Galatians is one of the first letters that Paul wrote late 40s uh, AD, and he says, well, there's no Jew or Greek. Well, wait a minute. Sometime later, maybe 10 years later, he wrote Romans, in which he said, salvation is to be proclaimed to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, wait, but this you just said, well, 10 years earlier, you said there's no Jew or Greek. doesn't matter anymore, right? No, it does matter. There's still a difference. But there is also a equality of opportunity, and that is to come to Christ doesn't matter your socio-ethnic background. You can come to Christ. Well, what about, uh, excuse me, so ethno-religious, there's the identity. Jew or Greek, are, are you born of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Are you following the Mosaic law and so forth? But what about this? There's neither slave nor free man. Well, he says it here, but then he says, like in Ephesians and Colossians, hey, if you're a slave, you better obey your master, your earthly master. What if you're a master, you ought to treat your servants wisely and well. So there is a distinction between slave and free man in that regard. But again, there's equal opportunity. If you're a slave, you can call upon the Lord and be saved just as much as a master, a free man can as well. So in that context, there's no male or female. He's not eradicating sexual differences, at, you know, male and female, masculine and feminine. He's saying whether you are a male or a female, whether you're a man or woman, you can call upon the name of the Lord. And that goes right against some of the Judaizing influence, the, the, uh, the prayer that the Jews would pray, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a, a Gentile or a woman. That was another thing they, they gave thanks for. Uh, because women were, were treated not just as second-class citizens, but really set apart. I mean, really not regarded much at all. Can't regard their, their uh, testimony in a court of law, both in the Jewish sense, Roman sense. It's just they're... they're disregarded. And he says, no, let me tell you this, male or female doesn't matter. You can come to Christ. You can have a salvation in him. It doesn't matter your biologic or even sociologic identity. Anybody, uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free man, male, female can come to and have a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the gracious thing. Whatever our identity is in this world, we can all have a relationship with God. 
our mental faculties, relationship with God. Age can have a relationship with God. You can come to the Father through Jesus the Son uh, and give him the glory because he's done great things. Let me just tell you this. From the very beginning to the very end, he is doing these wonderful things for his honor, for his glory. As we sang earlier, may Jesus Christ be praised. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word and how it just answers so much of the confusion in our world and our society. And we think this is new stuff, but it's not. It's been going on from the beginning. The insubordination of creation to your will and to your word. We're grateful for your patience. We're grateful that your word is sufficient. It is authoritative. We can rest in it. Please help us to be faithful to, of course, Um, teach it to others, but to live it ourselves. This is your command to us, your design, your decree for us. Help us to fulfill it to the best of our ability. Uh, And we pray that we would honor you. We have different people who are, are different ages, different situations of life, different marital statuses, and yet we are made in your image and we can relate to you. We can think, we can exercise your dominion over these things. Please help us to be faithful until you come. And again, we pray for that day when Christ, that beautiful God-man would come and rule and reign and be honored and be celebrated and loved and adored. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.